Last week, we saw the children of Israel cross the Jordan River, which might not sound like a big deal until you realize that they didn't take boats or a ferry or anything like that, but the priests stepped into the water with the Ark of the Covenant. God parted the waters for miles so that the people could walk across on dry ground. And we actually left them in the middle of that story. It was one of those fade to black to be continued sort of deals. And we're going to talk now about what they did after they got across the river. And the title tonight is Making a Memory, because they're going to do several things tonight that are going to help them remember what the Lord did. And if we want to use this as an illustration, we're always crossing rivers in our lives, so to speak. We're always moving from one stage of life to the next. We're always facing one obstacle that we need the Lord to come through. And I've been thinking a lot lately since we're coming up on our five-year anniversary as a church here about a lot of rivers that I had to cross and that we had to cross as a church. I remember moving into this church building was a big deal. You know, it, it, we didn't forget this room. We didn't even have that. We were meeting in the Hilton Garden Inn, which was great, in the Cahaba room. Do you remember that? And some of y'all will. And we would meet, and it was great, but every week it's like, ah, oh, I wish we had a, another dozen people so that we could, we could get into something a little more permanent. And we would meet people that would say very nicely, well, oh, it sounds great. You know, if you guys ever get a building, give us a call. And it's like, thank you. <laughs> That was, but I remember how happy we were when we came in. We're like, we're going to do it. We're going to get this. And I remember how long we prayed as a church to have the opportunity to minister in the prisons. Do you remember that? The Lord gave us a, a, a vision for the church during the years. Everything was so tumultuous and political. And not that much has changed. But, you know, at the, at the time, the schools and the issue of abortion and pregnancy and the prisons were what was in the air. And people were fighting about and yelling about. And we made a determination as a church, we're going to do something in each of these areas to bring the gospel. Pretty easy to get into the schools. Very easy to get involved in the pregnancy center. Prison took a long time. But then we finally did, and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, we're the ones running this thing at St. Clair Correctional Facility. That was a big deal for us. We prayed for a long time. I remember being in the middle of COVID and wondering, are we ever going to get past this? Remember people saying all sorts of really like pessimistic things, we're never going back to normal. I heard folks like preach that. It's just get used to the way it is. This is never going, and well, it kind of did. So praise God for that. But, you know, even if you didn't think that, it's kind of discouraging to hear it, right? You'll never fly on an airplane again. Well, okay, I have. It wasn't great, but we did it. <laughs> and the next, what's the next step for us? Probably, eventually, we're going to move to two services here. We're going to run out of room. And a few years later, we're going to be like, man, remember when we just had one service? Wasn't that nice when you only had to come in and do one thing? But when this room begins to fill up with people that are hearing the word and, and experiencing the gospel, every, that's what life is, man. You face one obstacle, and all you want is to get to the other side. And every single one of those things has a story of your own life, my life, the church, church history of getting over these rivers. And I'll say, if we desire each new crossing to be easier than the previous one, you've got to learn to remember what happened last time. If you spend your life forgetting what happened the last time you came across a river like that, you're going to spend your time freaking out the same way in front of every single one. So much of the Old Testament concerns memory. Talked about that a lot in the book of Deuteronomy, how you're going to remember these things. You're going to wear the tassels on your robes to remind you. The priests are going to have bells on their robes to remind you. You're going to have this holiday to remind you. You're going to have a feast to remind you. Because God knows, like the song we were singing earlier says, we're prone to wander. 
This is why we have even anniversaries and holidays to remember things. And sometimes people even fight over holidays. I don't know if we should remember that. It's like, well, that's what we do to remember things. Until we can learn to maintain the testimony of what God did in the past, you're going to continue to struggle anew with every river crossing. Maybe you've been friends with somebody like that or discipled somebody or been married to somebody that it seems like every new crisis is just as terrible as the last one. When the Lord desires to us to grow in our confidence and in our faith that God is going to come through. And I think that's what we're going to learn tonight. So let's look at chapter 4. The children of Israel are passing over the Jordan River with the priests in the middle. And it says in verse 1, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people passed over in haste. So we're crossing over the Jordan. And the last thing we saw was when the priest's feet touched the water, the water piled up in a heap about 18 miles upriver, and the people began to cross. We also saw back in chapter 3, verse 12, that God had told Joshua before the crossing to pick 12 men, one from each tribe. And he didn't tell us why. And now we see the reason was to gather stones from the river. So as they passed through, it seemed that these 12 men would have been the first, other than the priests, to go through. And each would put a stone on his shoulder. So the implication is that these are not pebbles, right? They're not rocks. It's a large stone that they would have carried out of the river. They're going to build a monument with them. And they're going to carry them out of the water. But you see also that Joshua builds a memorial in the river. Isn't that cool? So you take these 12 stones out to where we camp. Joshua also built a memorial of his own and took 12 stones and piled them up where the priests were. And the text says these are there to this day. I guess the idea is when the water got dry, if there was a drought, maybe like during the times of Elijah, there are the 12 stones sitting in the middle of the river to remind everybody of what God had done. What I want us to observe here in this first section, God told Joshua to put together a team of men to build a memorial before the waters had even parted. He said, get together a group of men whose job will be to build a monument to what I'm going to do tomorrow. 
So Joshua gets these guys and says, hey, so when we cross the river, uh, your job is to get a stone and you're going to make a memorial. Now, the people were full of faith. I don't want to get on their backs here. But you've got to wonder if these men thought, doesn't that seem a little premature, Joshua? <laughs> Maybe we should, you know, pray that the Lord allows us to build a nice bridge and then, and then we'll talk about memorials. Let's cross the river first. But you see that the Lord is telling them in faith to be ready to memorialize what he was about to do. We read this verse last time, but 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's a really short verse that'll keep you busy for a really long time. I don't want to relitigate everything we talked about last week, but I want to bring us up to speed and remind you that God's works, miraculous works, always begin with faith. It starts with faith. It starts by looking at what God is about to do and believing him for it. So tonight, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about memorials, talking about memory, talking about testimony. I've got to ask you this question. As you face the river in your life, as you face a difficult decision or a financial struggle or a relationship matter that you don't know what to do, do you believe now that God is going to come through? Are you already making plans on where you're going to build the monument? It's like when Jeremiah was taken out of the land of Judah. When Jeremiah was exiled to Egypt, what he did was the Lord had him buy a piece of land in Judah. And the question becomes, Jeremiah, this is going to be kind of useless because Babylon is taking over. You're not going to get to live there. You're never going to have it. But it was an act of faith of him saying, yeah, but I know one day God is going to bring us back. And this is my act of faith. Do you really believe that God's going to get you through? I know that it can be hard to be walking through the river or staring it down when it's at flood tide. Look again at how, the, at how this church was planted. We had lots of days that were rather difficult, at least for me. When you show up to the hotel and there's nobody there, and like it's getting kind of close, and I would sit there out in the lobby like reading my notes, kind of get ready and kind of looking at the window. Is anybody coming? And they're like, okay, there, there, somebody's here. Is anybody else here, though? I can't preach this message to three people. Okay, good. We got five. Five today. All right. I might need both hands to count everybody today. Like, that was fun, but it also was not very much fun. It's hard to, to sit there and plan and have all these great ideas and visions of what God has and to see none of it happening at the time. I remember there were days where I was sitting in that junk truck in the hot sun thinking to myself, what have I gotten myself into? I love telling the curdled milk story, so I'll tell it again. My first day, if you don't know, when I came down, the, the church in Lynchburg uh, gave me a little bit of a, continued my salary for a couple months and when we came down and planted, and then they pulled it back, which is more than generous that they did that. But I needed to get a job, and the job I ended up getting at the time was 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I would go to somebody's house in a big blue truck and carry out all their junk. The first day, I'm in my uniform, and it's about 10,000 degrees outside, and we were supposed to clear out, we did a lot of this, where somebody's garbage had not been collected because they hadn't paid a bill or whatever, and it was a, a coffee shop downtown. Now, coffee shops, I don't know if you know this, use all manner of milk, and uh, their milk had not been taken away. So my first day, remember, I'm being trained, and I picked up this big black bag of trash and threw it up in the truck, didn't quite make it over the top, and the, the mouth was hanging over the edge, and all this week-old, blazing hot milk poured all over me. It was miserable, but to make it worse, the guy that was training me 
bent over like this, laughing so hard. And Welcome to the job, friends. And I'm sitting there thinking, I have a master's degree. What am I doing here throwing milk in the back of a truck? I had those days. That was difficult. I remember when COVID first happened. When we, we didn't have live streaming when they closed church. I remember the week before they closed church, I believe it was uh, Stephanie Updike and Steve that talked to me in the hallway. They said, are we going to have church next week? I'm like, why wouldn't we have church? Well, because the coronavirus, like coronavirus, what, what's this? And then sure enough, things closed down. And you remember, we, you know, we can have our opinions now, but when that first happened, we had no idea what this was. Okay, we can't go to church. We don't have live stream. So what do we have? We had an iPhone. And I made a, on not this pulpit, but the old one. I st stacked those pew Bibles about this high, tilted my iPhone against it, and preached to a stack of Bibles and an iPhone for Sunday morning church. That was discouraging. But you know what? We're not supposed to evaluate things by sight, are we? Now, I'm not, I'm not telling you those stories to tell you, oh, I almost lost my faith. I didn't. But that doesn't make it any easier when you're dripping with curdled milk and it's only 10 o'clock in the morning and you've got the whole day ahead of you. I got all kinds of stories. Don't get me started on that job, man. We walk by faith and not by sight. You've got to trust that in the middle of that, God is going to tell a story that you will love to remember someday. Even when you're at the blackest part of that night and you're like, how are we ever going to get through this? There's got to be a faith ahead of time that God is going to get us through. And this chapter is all about how we build that kind of faith at the end so that we're ready for the next one. So let's look at this. Verse 11 will continue. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. So here's the end of the miracle. The timing of which confirms for us that this was, in fact, a miracle. I read some rather tedious pages during this time about how earthquakes can rock the Jordan River so that it will, it will stop for a while and, and then eventually the tectonic plates shift back and it all goes back to normal. It's like even if that is what happened, it doesn't happen when you say ready, set, go and the priests take the first step into the water and what that eventually leads to is people saying, well, they added those details later, which amounts to this story didn't happen the way God says it. So it only could have been a miracle. The waters returned. Remember the waters backed up at a place called Adam, 18 miles up river from where they were. So they get out of the water, or out of the riverbed, I should say, and it would have taken a minute for all the water to come back, but it did and it was just as strong as before. 
And he mentions in verse 12 and following that the Transjordanian tribes are going to go first. Remember back in Numbers 32, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh said we'd prefer to stay in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan. God gave them permission, but what he said was, but don't think you're going to skip out on the conquest. You're going with your brothers and sisters. In fact, you're going to be first in the battle, so that way they, you can go back afterwards, but everybody gets, gets the land. Everybody fights. And that's what we see in verse 13. It's not saying in verse 13 that there were only 40,000 Israelite soldiers. We know that it was something like 600,000 actually. But 40,000 were from Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh. It stands to reason. There's no reason why we couldn't believe that, that there was some sort of rear guard left. Although the Bible does make it very clear that the Lord is going to be your rear guard. Just go. I'll take care of your women and children. And it says Joshua was exalted. The people had been with him in faith, but now their faith has been confirmed. Because there, it says they were in awe of him like they were of Moses. Can you believe Joshua? What do you do with that guy? All right, be in awe of who he is. And the priests are the last ones out as they were the first ones in. And as soon as they come up out of that water, that heap, it says the heap of waters rushed back into place. There are a lot of parallels in the story to the Red Sea crossing how as soon as they left the dry ground, the waters came back. Uh, that's intentional. It's not only intentional in the way that it's written, it's intentional in the way God did it. He's trying to say, I'm still with you like I was with Moses. And the whole point is that this was a mighty act of God. There are a few things more exciting than to experience the promises of God just the way he said them. That's, that's so wonderful. Especially if you've ever been around somebody that the Lord gave a prophetic word to in your life. And usually when that happens, somebody says, the Lord has a word for you. You know, I believe in that. So, oh, okay. And then they tell you and you go, all right, thank you. And you kind of go, well, we'll see about that. Maybe you write it down, maybe not. But then all of a sudden it comes true and you're like, whoa, God was talking to me. And it happened just the way he said. That's a pretty exciting thing. But you know what else? It can also be really humbling if when the word came the first time, you, as the New Testament warns us not to do, were despising prophecy or scoffing at the word of God and saying, that is not going to happen. Joshua, I believe we'll cross the river, but don't sit there and tell me you're going to send the Ark of the Covenant in first. If we lose that thing, you will lose the leadership of this nation. It reminds me of 2 Kings chapter 7. This is when the city of Samaria was besieged. And if you know, a siege was a, was a terrible thing. They wouldn't even fight. They would just camp around the city. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out. Eventually you run out of food, you run out of water, and now you're ready to negotiate. Well, the people were even resorting to cannibalism in Samaria. And in 2 Kings 7, the king shows up to Elisha and says, we're going to kill this guy because this is supposedly the man of God. Why doesn't he fix this mess? And when he talks to Elisha, he's like, I, I, did I not tell you this was going to happen? that your sins were going to cause this. But in 2 Kings 7, Elisha tells him, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Point being, food will be cheap. They were eating donkey heads and ladies were resorting to eating their own children at this time. But he says, this time tomorrow, bread is going to be cheap. And then the captain, verse 2, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But Elisha said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. 
And what happened, that's a story where the lepers are like plundering the empty camp. And then they realize this is probably not a good thing that we're doing, is it? And they go and tell everybody that the, the Assyrians are gone and we can go and take their, take their stuff. And everybody rushes out to get the food from the camp. And that captain of the guard was trampled in the rush to get the food. So Elisha's word came true in both respects. God does not skimp on the details when he wants to deliver you. Don't you love that? I know that's kind of the trend right now. Read the Bible like at a distance, like you don't have your reading glasses on. Just get the gist, get the sense. Don't bother with the details, especially in prophecy, especially when we think we know what the archaeology said, for example. But God is a God of details, isn't he? How many prophecies did Jesus fulfill that you're like, was that even really worth recording that that happened? He'll be called a Nazarene. Out of Egypt, I will call my son. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Like, oh, that's a lot of really specific stuff, which is why when people say, I don't think we can read the end times prophecies specifically, it's like, well, it's kind of how it happened the first time. It was way more specific than anybody expected. And it's true in your own life too, that people will tell you. People will tell you. Sometimes the Lord will bring a prophetic voice into your life or you'll open up the scripture and the Holy Spirit will press that upon your heart. Trust in the Lord. Obey him and you will see deliverance like this. There will come a day when you'll get to rejoice because it's time to buy a second tray in the communion trays. I remember I was so happy the day that happened to you guys. We had never needed as many cups as that thing would hold. And then we had a day where, hey, we ran out of cups. And I was like, glory to God in the highest. Go buy another one. That was a wonderful day. <laughs> Yeah, there's, do you guys remember that closet we used to store everything in at that hotel? They very generously let us store all our stuff in the luggage room, but we were so small, we didn't use our stuff fast enough. So one time we went to get the coffee creamer and to pump it and it wouldn't come out and we opened it and it had congealed into this big block of nasty cream at the bottom. And I was like, okay, next time buy the small one because we're not gonna go through this fast enough. One time we opened up the communion juice and it went, it's like, hmm. I think we need a new one. <laughs> Been sitting in the closet for a while. I remember the first time I started the work day at the church. I was, I don't mind telling y'all, dancing and leaping before the Lord. Like, Lord, I'm in the church and it smells like new carpet. This is amazing. I'm looking forward to the day when we build our own building or buy our own building or whatever it may be when the Lord generously provides something for us that we're not even looking for. And we're gonna refer back to the days when we were across from Publix on Old Springville Road. And you were gonna be able to be part of that, that group that was there, you know, that's, that's coming. Has it happened yet? No, but I believe it's coming. Because we know that God does stuff like this. The trick is to believe him before they happen. So when we get into the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we're going to look at three different ways that Israel remembered what God had done. And it's going to give us three different lessons about how we can build that faith of memory so that when the next river shows up, you're like, God's got this one. Let's begin by finishing chapter 4, verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. 
For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of this earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You've probably noticed chapters 3 and 4 have a, a lot of repetition. There's a lot of looping the story. Like it'll tell you this piece and then this piece and this piece and then come back and say it again. Many people will say, this is just evidence that this story was stitched together from lots of different sources and uh, it wasn't written when it was said, so you can't trust the Bible, blah, blah, blah. How about it's just a different culture and that's how they wrote things. Most folks don't even like reading old English from like the 1800s. Like, what? Yeah, get to the point, will you? Like, well, that's this different. It's literature and that's how they wrote it. It's a, such an amazing moment. There's a lot of artistry that like, I'm going to say it five times because you need to get it. God parted the river for us to cross it. So they see, we see here this memorial is going to be made. They take these large stones and Joshua sets them up, likely piled up in a heap, like Deuteronomy 27 said, that an altar of the Lord is to be made of uncut stone. I don't want any human tool used to build my altar. So maybe he made it like that. There, there's really no indication given of what the shape would have looked like. It was very common at this time to put up what were called standing stones. They would get enormous big rocks and stand them up and, and embed them in the ground. Um, but they did carry these out of the river. So they probably weren't quite that big. It's just a big pile of rocks. Like, well, that's not very noble. It's like, but what it, what it reminds us of, that's what's more important, right? It's kind of like when David said, Lord, I'm going to build you a temple. He's like, I've been in a tent for a long time, David. I don't need a temple, but I love your heart. And later on, they build the second temple. And like, it looks terrible. And God goes, do I care about that? The Lord is cared, cares about the significance of something, not the appearance of something. But there at Gilgal was to be this memorial so that they could teach the children the story of the river. I'm sure they took field trips. You know, they'd go off and they'd look at the pile of rocks. They'd, what are this here for? You ever been out at like, a historical site, and your son or daughter says, why are we here? I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to tell you this story. I, I, could, I, I grew up in Virginia, man. Everything is a historical this or that, and I could give you the tour at Monticello if you want. Next time you go on up, just call me. I can walk you through it. I've been there so many times. But this is their memorial. To let not just the children, but the peoples, the Amim, the other nations, to know of God's mighty power. And this is like, I mean, this is a time, there's no historical record, there's no videotape. It's like, how do you know this happened? Because our fathers made this big pile of rocks right there so that we would know. And we wrote it down so that you could know for sure. We want to have faith prior to the victory, like Joshua did. Joshua called out 12 guys to pick up the memorial stones before the river had even parted. How do we build faith like that? The first thing we're going to see is to testify of what God has done for you. To build a memorial in your life, so to speak. To set up 12 stones to tell everybody what's happened. We sang this song tonight from Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That's a testimony. You're telling what God has done, but you're doing it in the first person with your own story. This poor man cried, and God heard me. Well, how do you know God exists? Because I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me. The power of the testimony is unassailable. 
That's why they gave that poor blind man such a hard time in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed a blind man, which the Pharisees had spent a long time telling everybody, when the blind are healed, that's how you know Messiah has come. Well, here comes Jesus opening the eyes of the blind, and they go, oh, you've got to be kidding me. People are going to get the wrong idea. So they're, constant, they're trying to prove in court that this guy was not blind. And eventually they say, don't you know what kind of man this is? And the guy goes, I assume he's a prophet because he opened up my eyes. So we know he's a wicked man. And John 9.25, he said, well, whatever he is, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And that was the problem. And that's why they ended up kicking him out of the synagogue. But he's like, fine, you people kicked me out when I was blind. You kicked me out when I would see. Why do I care what you think anyhow? But that's not the passage I'm preaching. What I'm trying to say is that the power of the testimony is unassailable. We can talk about theories. We can talk about arguments and people can come back and forth. But when you come and you say, this is what God did for me, it's very hard to combat that. And, and you know, I talk an awful lot about how our, our postmodern culture, it's not even we really have a postmodern culture. It's just being afflicted by postmodernism right now because nobody really knows what to do with it. And we're kind of booting it out slowly. But one thing that that does for us and helps us is they prioritize my truth way higher than they should. So you show up with your truth. God rescued me. God healed. That doesn't happen. Hey, don't invalidate my truth. It's like, hey, that's our, you can't use our thing. That's our thing, right? Come at them and say, hey, 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 this is what Jesus did for me. That's my story. That's my narrative. That's what has happened in my life. And people are more inclined to listen to that now, maybe more than they should, right? When you, you, you let your brain fall out listening to somebody's story. Remember we came to a, uh, somebody came to our pastor's meeting in Lynchburg who uh, was a heretic essentially, but he had all kinds of weird ideas and he was talking about, but essentially he didn't believe in sin and my dad really let him have it in, in this meeting. And he's like, then why did Jesus have to die? If there's no sin, then do you tell me why Jesus had to end? Oh, well, Brian, let me just tell you, man. And just, he ended up sending my dad an email later and said, hey, I would love to take you out and tell you my story of well, how I came to believe that. And my dad replied, I don't want to hear your story. I want to see what the Bible says. <laughs> so if you ever wonder where I get some of this from, that's, uh, that's part of it. <laughs> but the testimony, it's biblical, and it provides courage for other people. It's amazing to me how many folks sit on their testimony, what God did for them, especially supernatural stuff. The church is filled with people who speak in tongues and do not want anybody to know about it because that would make me seem weird and they might kick me out of the church. We're not going to kick you out of the church for that here, by the way. We love all the gifts of the Spirit and we're excited about all of them. Or the Lord does a miracle and you're like, Just don't tell anybody because they're going to they're gonna ask for receipts and I don't have the x-rays to show them. And they're going to, that's not what's going to happen. You tell somebody how God healed you, what are they going to do? Hey, you know what else? This person, in my life, this happened. And we start telling these stories together. And when we all are talking about our testimonies, the next time somebody's sick, we all go, hey, let's go pray for him. Because he's healed me and me and me and me and me and me. Let's go pray. The testimony, it provides courage. It builds that faith through memory, first of all, to yourself. Because when you tell your story, the memory gets fixed in your mind and you don't forget haven't you ever been delivered in a miraculous way and over time you start to doubt if it ever even happened? How is that possible? 
because Satan is trying to pull it away from you. But if you open your mouth and speak and put the, the, the glory of God on your lips, the Lord will make sure that it stays. And your fears will fade away. Like, yeah, I can't be afraid that God's not going to provide this time because I'm always telling that story about how God provided last time. Yeah, we're sick and I, you know, we're going to be responsible and go to the doctor and all that. But you know what? The Lord heals our bodies. He healed my body before, so I'm just going to be okay with how the Lord does this one. Second, it builds courage and faith in your loved ones, your kids especially, who trust you. If you can tell your testimony to the right person, they get to skip the hard knocks lesson you had to learn. Haven't you ever gone through something and you go, wow, I, I'm grateful for the lesson, but I don't want anybody to ever have to go through that. Yeah, I learned about the importance of self-control by becoming an alcoholic and waking up in the gutter. But how about I just tell you that story so that you don't have to go through that yourself? I'll tell you, parents especially, as your kids get old, don't hide what the Lord did for your life. Don't hide your sins. Don't hide your shortcomings. You can be you know, discerning about it, but especially as they get older, and I'll say especially dads to your sons, tell them about where you fell short because if they're going to grow up thinking dad has no idea what it feels like to be in love with a woman and be tempted sexually, he's always been perfect. You take your son aside and say, hey man, I know how it is, and I didn't always do it right. Or maybe you did, but I remember I was, I was, I was not wise at this time, but God got me out of it. You're going to build such a bond between the two of you, and they might get a chance to skip the lesson that you had to learn. And number three, it's going to testify to the world who needs to know. The other nations will come by. What meaneth these stones? Don't you know what God did for me? Don't you know? Testify. Don't ever be ashamed of your testimony. Write down what God has done. That's why I don't mind in some of the books we write and the things that we put online, I like to put in personal stories. Not because I want to pump myself up, God forbid, but because if that's what God did for me, I want to tell somebody else and let them know what God did. If God did it for him, he can certainly do it for me. Maybe you got to schedule a holiday in your own family. Wouldn't that be fun? No, we can't, we can't spend time with you this day. This is the day we remember that God provided for our house. We were going to lose it, and God provided, and we kept it. So we always take this day to go celebrate and, and worship together. Build your own memorial. Maybe some of y'all are crafty, and you like, to, you like to make things. Make something to hang in your house. Well, what is this all about? Like, can I tell you a story? We thought our marriage was done. We thought it was over. And then we both came into the house of the Lord and somebody gave a message and we just both collapsed in each other's arms and we said, we've, we're going to do it God's way. And it hasn't always been easy, but we're still here. And that's a testimony to what God has done. That's, that's what we can do. Maybe you're not crafty. Maybe you're more like me and you, you know, you're going to print out a picture and tape it on the wall. So, yeah, that's, that's the day the Lord finally finally uh, got me out of that 1-800-GOT-JUNK job, for which I am so grateful, but I'm still more grateful that I got taken out of it. Don't ever be ashamed of your testimony, because those things remind us of how mighty God is, right? Don't ever be ashamed of it. And if you, in this room, are going to make somebody else feel ashamed for their testimony, how dare you? Do not be the kind of person where somebody shares what happened in their life, and they go, you go, oh, okay, well, okay. And they go, well, that's the last time I do that. You want people to tell the stories of what God has done. So if somebody walks in, this church is full of holy rollers and they never sin. <laughs> yeah, okay. We're a bunch of people that have been brought back from the brink by grace. But if you don't talk about it, nobody will know it. So testify. Second thing, chapter five now. I'll read the first nine verses. 
As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord to Joshua said, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeat Ha'araloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The name Gilgal sounds like the word roll in Hebrew. And that name back there in verse 3, Gibeath Ha'araloth, means the hill of foreskins, which is why most translations don't translate it. But that is what it means. It's to commemorate what happened here. The stones that they had set up do their work. Because they were, remember, to testify to all the nations that God was mighty. And they saw what God had done and their hearts melted within them. They, had, they were so afraid. No spirit in them. You would think this would be the time to press the advantage. Go, Joshua. March on Jericho today. But the Lord delays the people first. Seems that since the, since the exodus, the practice of circumcision had ceased. And so God has them stop to circumcise the men as a renewal of their commitment to the covenant. Now you might say, why didn't they circumcise? You remember these people from the book of Numbers? They were not good people. There was one story after another of rebellion. And so they have to wait until they get into the promised land and until most of these men are full grown. Now, this, of course, would have been a painful process. This is not something that is done easily or lightly with no anesthetic, with no way to recover from it, the risk of infection, all the rest, although they weren't as stupid as we tend to think they are, right? They weren't cavemen here. But what is more important for you to notice is this was done at, at the worst possible time as concerns military strategy. Why wouldn't you do this on the other side of the river when you're in the land that you yourself possess? Why not do it in stages so that you always have a remnant of soldiers able to defend the camp. Why wait until you cross over into enemy territory and then immobilize all of your fighting men for a week or more? Because the Lord and Joshua both know that this is not a physical battle that they are about to fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. And God says, before I take you into battle, I'm going to roll away the reproach that came upon you in Egypt. Meaning all of these that came out of Egypt and are still walking in these Egyptian ways, I'm going to take it away. 
We desire to have faith prior to the victory. We've crossed the Jordan River, but there's Jericho. How are we going to have enough faith to do that? You've got to, number two, obey the Lord and walk in all his ways. You want faith to face the next challenge? You've got to be obedient to the Lord. The Lord had told them to circumcise their children all the way back to Abraham's time. It's also, you know, there's a whole other lesson here, and I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious here. So please be mature as I say this. What this lesson is supposed to teach you also, that if you obey the, obey the Lord early when he tells you to, it will be less painful than when you do it later. And the Lord will still accept you. But haven't you found that to be the case, that if you do it right the first time, it doesn't hurt nearly as bad as when you come around and do it later? Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Talking about bad military strategy. Remember, this is how Israel, uh, Simeon and Levi conquered the city of Shechem. And they've now exposed themselves to that same danger. But this reminds us of Proverbs 3, where the Lord says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. And we continue, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You know, those verses are famous for a reason. They're so good, aren't they? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. God says, cross the river and then circumcise the soldiers. God, I don't know if that's a good idea, but I trust you. In all your ways, acknowledge him, not leaning on your own understanding. If you want God to do things beyond your understanding in the battle, you've got to do things beyond your understanding every day by your obedience. You cannot say, Lord, do things that I cannot fathom at the Jordan River and around the walls of Jericho. But in peacetime, don't come around asking me to do anything that I don't understand. You know, as we come here, we study the Word. We place a high premium on the study of the Word of God. And I don't apologize for that. But I want to make sure that you know, you should not just be growing in your knowledge here as Christians, nor just growing in your skills as a minister of the gospel. You've got to let the Holy Spirit shape your spirit every day. Because the Bible tells us we can come right up next to the Word and completely miss the point if we don't obey you know, people say, I don't understand how there can be people saying, Lord, Lord, who will be turned away at the last judgment. Because Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I command you? I heard an unfortunate sermon not long ago. And he said, you know, I, I know what the Bible says about homosexuality, but you're going to tell me somebody who says, I love Jesus with all my heart and, and he's the my savior of my soul. But, you know, if he decides that he's going to send me to hell for being homosexual, then I'm going to love him anyway. You're going to tell me that person won't go to heaven? Yes, because Jesus said, if you say you love me and you don't do what I say, you're a liar. That's what John said, isn't it? Obedience. And I don't want to bring it down to, you know, to beat up on you here. I just want to remind you, you've got to be learning to obey the Lord. This is not an opportune time, Joshua, to do that. Yes, we've done wrong. We should circumcise the men, but now is not the time. Joshua says there is no other time other than right now to obey what the Lord has said. Obedience maintains the memory as well. You're trying to remember what God has done. If every new victory pushes you to a greater obedience to the Lord, then every time you do that thing, and you say, why do we have to do this? Sometimes we, you know, our flesh gets in the way. Why do we got to get up and go to church every Sunday? Why do they have to do it in the morning? Why can't they have a nice, you know, mid-afternoon service? You know, because, because you think people sleep in the morning service. Try to, you know, have a mid-afternoon, we'll see. 
I don't have anything against mid-afternoon services. I'm just making a joke. <laughs> Why do we go that early in the morning? And if you say, we do this because we spent a long time skipping out on church and it didn't work out very well. I was a mess. She was a mess. The family wasn't doing good. And the kids were running wild. And since we've been in fellowship again, the Lord has completely restored our family. So we're getting out of bed and we're going to church. That's just one example. Obedience maintains memory. Dad, why do you do that? Even optional things. And the Bible says you don't have to do. Dad, why don't we watch movies like that? Well, I'll tell you, because your dad was very susceptible to that kind of thing when he was a younger man. And it really got to my soul. And I don't want that for you. And when you grow older, you'll, you'll have your own convictions before the Lord. But that's why we do this. It's my attempt to be obedient before God. That maintains the memory. God led them into a dangerous situation and then told them to obey on purpose because he wanted them to remember, you're not going to win this battle through logistics and through the strength of men, but only through me. So what's more important to you, obedience or tactics? I could ask you the same question. Verses 10 through 12. While the people were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening, on the plains of Jericho. So this is four days later. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased. You might want to underline this verse. The manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Pretty special passage there. There's another delay, though. They crossed in springtime, just in time to keep Passover. And Passover, of course, was the ultimate memorial for the children of Israel. To remember when God passed over them in the land of Egypt, when they spread the blood on the doorframe, and the Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Passover remains our main memorial as Christians today in the form of the communion table. Jesus took that and gave us the, the deeper meaning behind it. And, you know, we're not bound to the ritual anymore, according to the New Testament. But we're still eating unleavened bread and drinking the fruit of the vine together in order to commemorate our Passover lamb. Once again, you can see that the connection to the land of Egypt, that season of life is over forever. The last generation that had been born in Egypt has been circumcised. And the people that were slaves there who were sinful are all dead. And now we're having Passover in the promised land. It's been too long, but it's finally over. And the way we know that this story is done is that the manna stopped falling. That must have been so strange for them to wake up in the morning the next day. There's no manna. The manna's not here. Probably maybe some of them panicked a little bit. The Lord is no longer with us. And Joshua says, no, the opposite of that is true. The feast of unleavened bread has begun and we've made bread for the first time from the the produce of the promised land. The manna was to provide for you until you came to the land flowing with milk and honey. And now that you're here, that miracle is over. It's a great picture too of the first fruits of their worship. The first thing they're harvesting food for is for Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which followed. This is what God deserves. This is our third thing. If you want to build enough faith for the next river to cross, the next victory, the third thing you must do is worship the Lord who is able to deliver you. So we've had testify, obey, and then worship. 
Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21, talks about victory and overcoming. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. I love that verse. Yes, power to overcome and do more than we could ever ask or think. But remember, that is given in the context of a doxology. Because verse 21 says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We love the thought of God's miraculous power. But we must never think of God as some kind of magical ally. That he's just there to do things when they get a little too tough for us. We've done that as a society, haven't we? What do we need God for? We've got hospitals. What do we need God for? We have electricity. We have refrigeration. We have processed foods. We don't need God anymore. What a foolish thing to say. That's never what God was for in the first place. He is God of all. He is the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, one in three and three in one, reigning above all things. You fail to worship the Lord, and the memory of his deliverance will fade. You might think, I'll never forget what you did for me. I'll tell you, I can't believe how many people have come to this church or any other place where I've ministered before. And the Lord touches them in a miraculous and mighty way. And there's tears and there's emotion. There's great joy. I'll never forget what God has done. And you come back and as the word says, they've gone back to their vomit like a dog. Went right back to what they were doing before. And you thought, what happened? Well, they just, they stopped coming to church. They started coming late. They started skipping out on things. They started coming up with their own ideas. And then they just vanished. They stopped worshiping. And you know, I'll just make a little note here. There's been a, a big push in recent years that is kind of over, but it's still there. Well, worship is not just singing. It's not just, you know, doing song to the Lord. That is true. But most of the time when the Bible talks about worship in that sense, it is talking about the act of coming together with the congregation to offer praise to the Lord. Most of the time in the Bible, it's talking about offering sacrifices. But the Bible in the New Testament tells us we don't offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus is our only sacrifice. But what we offer is the fruit of lips that declare his praise. And Paul tells us that to be filled with the Spirit is to sing psalms hymns, and spiritual songs. For the word of the Lord to dwell in us richly, he said again, is to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So you must not separate a lifestyle of worship from the act itself of coming to worship the Lord. I'm worried that the church in the United States is losing that simple love for Jesus, that, that worship of God that is the foundation of our faith. And I, I don't want, I'm not even going to come in and criticize modern worship music here. I'm talking about the attitude that we have. Because the songs that are written are, are great. They're wonderful. But it's the heart that looks to God not as, you know, you don't, you don't run into somebody that just has this overwhelming personal delight in Jesus. What has Jesus done for me? Who is Jesus to you? I'm concerned that we've become so focused on the issues or so focused on doctrine, so focused on, on life. All of our important things, but you know, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus would drive people crazy because he said, I'm going to go and commune with my Father. I'm going to go pray by myself and none of you can come. Jesus, there's a whole line of people at the door because I have business with my Father. It's the same for you and me. We have to be worshipers of Almighty God, disciples of Jesus Christ. God's miracles for you when he heals your body, 
when he provides for your needs, whatever he does, should cause you to drop to your knees and exalt his name forever. We should not be people that are dependent upon the tune to worship God. I get the chance to sing. Oh, I hate this song. Doesn't matter. I love him. Oh, they're not as good a guitar player. Now there's no piano. Oh, there's no choir. Who cares, guys? Who cares? It's Jesus. He's worthy of our praise and worship. What if all this stuff is taken away? You know, what if the nation is invaded? I'm not prophesying now. What if the nation is invaded and the churches are bombed out? What happens if the, you know, the, there's some sort of law that forces the church to go underground and all we can do is, is chant psalms together? Isn't that going to be enough? Because Jesus is worthy of worship. They can't take that away from you. Even if they kill your body, they're going to send you right back up to that 24-7 worship party where we all sing holy, holy, holy all day long. If you can spend your life in worship of the Lord, not just through song, but through prayer and through obedience and all the things we've talked about, then when the miracle comes, you'll be ready to gather 12 stones. Like We've got another hardship, but there's going to be some great songs that come out of this one. I can't wait. I can't wait to see what the Lord does. God will praise you for it. That's why I love, and I, I, you know, very often people assume I'm being facetious when I say this, but I'm not. That's why I love to pray with old saints that have known the Lord for a very long time. I remember talking to one man at a friend of mine's wedding, and you get paired with people you don't really know, this very old man. And he's, you know, he says, oh, I'm, I'm almost 90 years old. I'm like, wow. And he says, I've been a, been a pastor since I was 19. I'm like, I sit there like, so, okay, so about 80 years this guy was in ministry. And I'm like, what if he prayed an hour a day for that long? That's, that's incredible. You know, for or 70 years, I guess it would be, right? You know, that if you prayed an hour a day for decades, you sang praises to the Lord every single morning. If you, you know, obviously things happen. You didn't miss a church service for that long. What kind of relationship will you have with Jesus? We say, I want to grow in my faith. Y'all, it's not complicated. Come to where he is and hang around his people. Come into his house and spend time with the Lord. And when the moment comes for another miracle, you'll be ready. Let's finish out the chapter now. Verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him, brave guy, and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No. I love that translation. The older ones have neither. The word in Hebrew is no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. We change scenes here, no doubt, during this time of unleavened bread. When the men have been circumcised, and as the word says, they were still in their pain. Joshua, who would have been circumcised, is, is planning his assault on Jericho. What are we going to do, God? And he encounters a man with a sword. And Joshua's a warrior and a spy and a general and a prophet. He ain't afraid of nobody. He walks up and says, all right, are you one of ours? Are you one of theirs? But when he talks to this man, he begins to realize that he's on holy ground, like Moses was on holy ground at the burning bush, and worships him. Who is this figure? Well, at the very least, he's an angel. But if we look at, the, at three points here, number one, 
The statement that he says, when you're in my presence, you're on holy ground, which is what God said to Moses in Exodus 3, 5 at the burning bush. You look at the fact that he says, I'm the commander of the Lord's armies, which is a title Revelation 19, 14 ascribes to Jesus Christ. And it's tough to imagine being assigned to anybody else. And the fact that Joshua worships him and this man does not stop him as Revelation 19 and 22. John tries that twice and the angels immediately stop him. Receiving worship is not the mark of an angel, it's the mark of a demon, unless this is the Lord himself. This leads us to identify this as the capital A, angel of the Lord, the son of God himself. It's what is called a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance of Christ prior to his incarnation. Pretty cool. We are not told what God said to him until the next chapter. Great cliffhanger here. The point is that God is with him. More accurately, you can be with God because the Lord does not condescend to our level. Are you on my team, Lord? He goes, you can be on mine if you want. I'm not joining your team. <laughs> the crossing of the Jordan was a success. They had faith. They saw the miracle. And now God is with them for the next river to cross, which is called Jericho, a fortified city. This is why the memory is so important. Because as soon as you cross the Jordan, you've got Jericho. As soon as you get over one thing, the next thing happens. As soon as you get through this year, the next year is coming up. You've got to build faith. Maintain the memory so that you can have faith for the next time. What has God done for your soul? Just think back on it. I know you're not where you want to be. None of us are. That's why even Paul, the apostle, I'm not, I've not yet attained. I'm not there yet. But what has God done? Where has God brought you through? What about your body? Has the Lord healed you? No, he's healed a lot of people in this church and through this church. Do you remember that? What about your family? What has God done? Again, your family might not be where you want it to be, but has, have the waters started to dry up just a little bit? And there's some indication that they might be piling up at the city of Adam. What about your finances or career? Has the Lord ever come through in the last minute for you? Has the Lord brought you even just blessings that are not necessities, but he's just done things for you that you asked? In your ministry, I've been just thinking lately about all the things God has done through my ministry at this church here, and I just get overwhelmed. I'm like, Lord, that's amazing. No wonder you called us here. Every church planner deals with that. Like, am I just like adding to the noise by doing this, you know? But I consider all the people that God has brought here, those that have been saved, the kids that have been discipled, the healings that have happened, the marriages that have been healed. I'm like, God surely put us in this place. And I'm ready for the next adventure, friends. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I know it's going to be wonderful. And when that first next big obstacle is staring us in the face, we're going to remember the last one and how God brought us through. Testify of what God has done. Don't sit on it, baby. Tell everybody. Number two, obey his commandments. Don't think you'll remember if you're not obeying and worship him always. That's how we make a memory that will serve us well the next time we come to the river so that we'll already have the team prepared to build the monument before the water's been parted. And if you're facing the river right now, can I just remind you that the Lord is with you and he will in no wise cast out those who call upon his name. Maybe the reason the river is so difficult is because you haven't called on the name of the Lord yet. Or you did call and he told you what to do and you said, that's crazy, I'm not doing that. Have faith and remember what the Lord has done.